I'm Dick Alstrom, and you're listening to Vaccine Questions, brought to you by the Royal Irish Academy Life and Medical Sciences Committee. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Vaccine Questions. Our guest today is behavioral economist, Professor Peter Lunn. He is founder and head of the Economic and Social Research Institute's Behavioral Research Unit, where he leads a group of 15 behavioral scientists studying things such as economic decision-making and how people negotiate trade-offs. Pete, would you mind giving me a quick overview of your career and what brought you to your current role at the ESRI? Uh, Sure. Hi there. So I have a very unusual career. I come from an academic family and I did a standard academic degree in philosophy and psychology and then went straight into a PhD, which was in visual perception. So in kind of experimental psychology, I was studying stereoscopic vision uh, with quite a neuroscience element, actually looking at kind of brain areas and how they integrate information from the two eyes. So quite hard science, really. But at the end of that, uh, I was an unusual scientist, very interested in public affairs. I left academia, went off to be a journalist. I got a job at the BBC and I did that for seven or eight years mostly specialising in science. But while I was doing that, I got sick of losing arguments to economists. And I had a little bit of money and I was young and single and I had some time. So I just separately did a master's in economics in part-time in the evening. And I then discovered behavioural science. I realised that there was a world between psychology and economics that was just fascinating. And I started reading a lot of behavioural economics. So I think from that point on, I was always going to go back into research and stop working as a journalist. But when I first emigrated to Ireland, I was, believe it or not, the first editor of Newstalk, got Hmm. that up and running. And then finally, having done that, I decided to go back into research and the ESRI just looked like the right place to go and try and build a behavioral research group because the great thing about behavioral science is how applied it is and how it can affect main a lot of main policy issues and the ESRI seemed to me to be a place where that was possible. So that's how I ended up there. I guess I'm a kind of halfway house between being an academic and being in public affairs. It's a good location. I was split between doing lit degrees and writing all my career about science. So there seems to be a kind of mishmash, but they always work well. As a behavioral scientist, what would you be doing? What does your work involve? I guess my work is very similar to any scientist in that I spend a lot of my time writing papers, reading papers, trying to understand scientific findings, doing statistical analysis, organizing data, running statistical models. I mean, all the stuff that scientists do. And I suppose what makes me a behavioral scientist is that all of my data concerns human decision-making and behaviour, and that's what I'm really interested in, and that's also the theory that I know and the papers that I read. But my day-to-day is, is, you know, the classic sort of thing that nerds like me do, which is playing with data and designing experiments and loving every minute of it. I like nothing better than sitting and playing with data and trying to work out what it's telling me and trying to explain things in the world. So that would be the day-to-day, but the subject matter, of course, is this kind of highly applied idea of why people behave the way they do and why they make the decisions that they make. Okay. Because you, a lot of your work, I guess, is really experimental and collecting data, but you apply the same kind of strictures on yourself as they would in the medical trials area. Yes. Yeah, so the, the standard technique that we use would be that we'll recruit a sample and we will randomize them into different groups. So a very simple example might be during the COVID pandemic, if we're trying to encourage people to engage in social distancing and we want to test whether there are particular ways of describing the information or presenting the evidence to them that might be more effective than others, then we would have a sample of people, we would randomise them into different groups. Half of that 
sample might see what the information presented one way. They might see one kind of poster or advert or piece of information. Half of the sample might then see it another way. And because we've done that randomly, we know if we then see differences in people's attitudes or their intentions for how they're going to behave from now on or what they think is good behavior or bad behavior and so on, we know if we see differences that it's down to the different the difference between the way we gave them the information, the one thing that we manipulated, if you like. So in that sense, this is exactly like doing clinical trials with a randomized controlled trial and a drug where you have a control group, you have a treatment group, and you know one group is getting treated differently and you know because you've randomized it that that's the thing that's made the difference. So yeah, we do exactly the same thing with behavior and decision-making. You're part of a subgroup that advises NEFIT on public response to the pandemic. What is, what is NEFIT looking for from your subgroup? And what kinds of things are you trying to study and specifically in relation to the pandemic? So yeah, NEFIT got a subgroup to look at behavior going very early on. I think it was very good that it did. Um, we fed a lot of evidence in, initially rounding up international evidence for them actually, behavioral evidence that really fed in messages about how the public were likely to see the pandemic as a collective action problem, that they would instinctively understand that everybody's outcomes depended on everyone else's behavior and that we had to all behave collectively in a way to help each other. Mm -hmm. Now, we know from the behavioral science that in emergency situations, that is exactly what human beings usually do, particularly if they're given very clear direction about what the expected behavior is and why it will lead to the outcome that's best for all. So we fed a lot of that evidence in. And I think that was important because we know that authorities are often very worried that what will happen when emergencies come about and people are frightened is that they'll behave more selfishly, that they will do things that is really unhelpful for everybody. And while we saw a little bit of panic buying at the start of the pandemic, what's remarkable about it actually is how the behavioral science of it has been like other previous emergencies, which is mm -hmm. when people realized what they needed to do, they pulled together and did it. Um, and we fed a lot of evidence in to suggest that that's what they were likely to do, but also what you could do to support that. So initially, we were rounding up all that international evidence. Then as time went on, we started doing studies on the Irish population. So we were looking at things that would, for example, promote social distancing, as I've already mentioned, help people through self-isolation, understanding how to do that. We looked at risk perception as well, where we were interested in how well people had absorbed messages about what scenarios were more risky than other scenarios and how they weighted the different factors, like whether you're indoors or outdoors, how many people are there, how far away you are from people, whether it's well ventilated, these kind of things. And we got them balancing those risks. And we compared a public sample to an expert sample, so we did work on that. We've done work on vaccine hesitancy as well. So, yeah, we've done quite a lot of different studies on the Irish population where we fed answers to research questions directly uh, into the policy process. It must be fun in a way to to do this work, even from the point of view that your test subjects are humans. They're not rats. They're not lab rats or, or mice or anything like that. It's You've got real people sitting there in front of you. This will sound fairly pathetic, but the truth of the matter is when I run a behavioral study on people and I get the data into my machine and I start to open it and I put it into the software package and I start to open it and I start to generate the results, I feel the way I felt when I came down on Christmas morning and started unwrapping presents when I was a kid. <laughs> I just have this kind of thing of, oh, wow, I wonder what's going to be in here, you know? Yeah, I mean, the reason I initially did an experimental psychology degree was back when I was 16, 17 years old. I was fascinated by human behavior and people. And now I just love looking at data about it and trying to explain it and trying to understand it. So I've never lost that enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. 
the data that you derive, how influential do you think it is in either turning Neffet around or the government? I mean, how, what, is it having a big impact? The truth is that when you do my job, that's a really, really hard thing to gauge. So you, you take the evidence, you package it in a form where you think it communicates the message as best you possibly can and the findings as accurately as you possibly can, and you send it in there, and you really have no idea. And sometimes they tell you afterwards that it was influential, but usually you just don't know. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the evidence that we've produced has been used fairly extensively because they keep coming back and asking for more. So if they weren't using it, it would be an odd thing to be paying for more of it. So I assume they are. What I would say, though, is I think there are some messages we produced that have definitely had an impact. So one was getting across that initial idea about how people are likely to behave in collective action problems and how to get them to cooperate with each other. And I think that certainly had an impact early on. But more recently, this year in particular, we produced some data that really showed how coherent the plan is, how coherent the restrictions are, how they hang together makes a real difference to the likelihood that people will follow them. If they can really see how the behavior that is being asked of them is likely to lead to the outcome that we all want, they're more likely to do it. And we showed some data that got that across quite strongly. And I think that had an influence coming out of this third wave in Ireland as we have. I think it had an influence on a more coherent strategy to get people outdoors and to get the different restrictions to link to each other and to see that they were a kind of coherent package. So I think we, we certainly had some influence there, but in general, one never really knows. Okay. In the early days of the pandemic, you worked on methods to get people washing their hands correctly. But also, I didn't realize they could get this complex, but it's the notion that, you know, how do you encourage people to make sacrifices for the public good? Or how can you help people get through uh, the impact of level five lockdown? Yeah, so this is really fascinating, actually. The, the, the making sacrifices for the public good experiments that we ran, uh, we were really looking at people being willing to socially distance. That's the primary thing, willing to abide by restrictions. And one of the things that's fascinating about that is that people are often not the way they describe themselves to you. Mm. So if you ask people what they think they do, They'll say, oh, just give me the information. If you give me the information, I will then make a decision on how I want to behave and what I want to do. I just want the best information possible, please. And that's what they think they do. What our experiments show is that that's not actually true, that if you communicate with them at a more emotional level, you're much more likely to influence their behavior. So we ran a study where we used a thing that psychologists call the identifiable victim effect, which is if you're trying to persuade people to socially distance if you give them an example that involves a specific individual who might be affected, it's more likely to influence their behavior than if you just give them the information in kind of statistical terms or you tell them that A leads to B. If you identify the person, even if it's a stranger, someone they don't even know, if you simply identify in narrative the person who might be affected, then that has a bigger influence on their behavior. And we ran an experiment that showed that. Another example is to do with people worrying about how many people they might infect. So one of the things we know is that human beings are not very good at processing and understanding nonlinear relationships. And one of the things about the spread of a disease is highly nonlinear, that you can infect three people who would infect nine, who would infect 27 and so on. And you as an individual thinking that your behavior could be responsible for so many people down the line catching this nasty disease. Uh, that's quite an emotional message as well. And we found that that also was a much more effective message than simply giving people the information about how the disease transmits and what they need to do to avoid it. So mm -hmm. we're far more emotional creatures than we like to admit. And some of our experiments suggested that. Cool. No wonder you're seeing Christmas every time you open up the data. It sounds interesting. 
Um, <laughs> well, I hope I'm giving some insight into that. I mean, this is genuinely true. I actually feel my heart quicken as I start opening data and looking at the primary results. But of course, a lot of the experiments we run, there might be one really big manipulation that we're trying to make work, where we're trying to show that you know, we've split the sample in two. It's like the one drug that we're trying. you might be trying to get in medicine to work and test. You know, we might have one idea that we're convinced is going to work. And I know within five minutes of opening the data, I'll have a pretty good idea whether it has or not. So yeah. sometimes it's quite a scary prospect too. Nice. This is one out of the Irish Times in a sense. You wrote in the Irish Times back in October 2020 that behavior is our primary defense against the virus. Can you expand on that idea? It's an interesting idea. So our behavior is what is actually being applied against the virus. Yes. I mean, I, I think until the vaccine came along, it, it, it was an important statement to make, actually, to get people to really understand that. I mean, we were looking at the case numbers going up and down when people were watching them very, very closely. And we could see in the data that those case numbers were so closely linked. Uh, to what people are actually doing. And I mean, particularly since Christmas, actually, where we've been measuring much more accurately what people do. We have a study which is just an anonymous online study. You can just do it on your phone where we just ask how often you've left the house, where did you go, what did you do, who did you meet, how long were you there for, this kind of thing. And we can absolutely see the way that the case numbers and the transmission of the disease is related to changes in people's behavior. And they track incredibly closely. So yeah, I mean, our behavior during this pandemic has been the thing that has determined how the disease is transmitted and our collective behavior. And I think that's just still now an important thing to recognize, even though the vaccine has come along. I mean, we're again at a time where it's highly contentious what we should be permitted to do or not permitted to do or what's reasonable to do and what isn't reasonable to do. I mean, people should really understand that the data could not be clearer that the decisions you make on a daily basis make a difference. It's just there's a lot of us and you have to add us all up. Mm -hmm. um, I think you found that infection rates seem to be driven by our attempts to balance risk against maintaining our social and economic lives. And in a sense, when I read that, I kind of thought this looks like a, a let off for the teenagers who want to go down the canal, drink cans <laughs> and uh, break out because they've taken a slightly different adjustment in terms of where they're going to balance risk versus social and economic life. I, I would agree with everything you've said there, Dick, except for the word slightly, in that our evidence actually suggests that the degree to which the mental health of young adults has been affected compared to older adults is really, really large. So I've tended to be really quite sympathetic even mm. towards kind of younger people who at times have not abided by the restrictions because I think they are taking a bigger hit than all the rest of us. For someone who's a middle-aged guy like me with kids at home, there have been parts of this pandemic obviously that I've really hated and have got me down, but there's also been some upsides to do with spending time with my kids and having a happy home life and so on. I mean, for somebody who's making their way in the world, who's becoming independent from their family, who's trying to form relationships, who's trying to make friendships, who's dealing with all the kind of insecurities of coming out into the world that teenagers and young adults have to deal with, and I'm very glad and out behind me, I think this pandemic must have been an absolute nightmare, and our data show how awful it's been for them. So any behavioral scientist like me, when they know how much anguish something is causing, is also going to know that people are going to seek to escape from it. So, I mean, it's absolutely inevitable. We can make it a moral and an ethical thing if we wish, but I think it's absolutely inevitable that the boundaries are going to be pushed more by younger mm. people and young adults. I expected to see it, and then we did see it. It's not because they have different attitudes or ethics to the rest of us. It's because they're suffering more and a real degree of sympathy with their plight and trying to help them to stay safe but still have fun, I think, has been a really important part of the pandemic. Okay, I can vote for that one. If we go back to the risk idea, do we do a bad job gauging risk? Do we miss the point, or what, what do you make of it? That's a really, really difficult question. 
Human beings are generally very poor at judging risk. There's a lot of experimental science that shows this. And we've run some studies that show that people are not brilliant at assessing different kinds of risk. But we are very, very good at absorbing some things relatively and at absorbing things when we're under serious threat. So one of the things that was fascinating, actually, at looking at people's risk perception is how well the public actually absorbed the main messages that, you know, if you think very quickly, you've got to get the entire population to understand how a disease spreads and change its behavior. Our studies suggest it was remarkable, actually, how well they absorbed those messages about how far apart they needed to be, about how long they were with someone making a difference, about whether being indoors or outdoors made a difference. Uh, about how many people were around them made a difference and so on. And they really had absorbed those messages. Now, they didn't do it as well as the experts. And our study kind of showed where. It, it showed that they were underestimating how important it was to be outdoors, in particular, that that made a bigger difference than ordinary people thought it was making. The experts were saying, well, actually, that makes a bigger difference. So we could show that, and that's helpful from a policy point of view. But overall, it was actually remarkable how well the public had absorbed the information. But interestingly... That doesn't make you good at judging absolute risks. So it might tell you that one COVID risk is more, one situation for COVID, let's say, is more risky than another. That going into one house or one situation comes with a high risk and another situation comes with a lower risk. You might be quite good at doing that. But what it doesn't really tell you is how to say, well, look, what difference does that make compared to driving a car without a seatbelt or some other disease I might try to avoid? you know, or drinking to excess, or, you know, how do I judge the risk of COVID against these things? That kind of absolute measure of how much threat there is to us, no, we're really poor at that. <laughs> we find those mm. judgments really, really hard. It's not going to happen to me. Yeah, and absolutely. We, we, have, we have known fallacies where there are low risks that we treat as zero risks, and there are risks that are prominent that we see a lot of in the media and so on, which we exaggerate and we think are, are higher risks. So, for example, diseases that get more news coverage, people think they're more likely to catch than diseases that get less news coverage and so on. So we, we partly use how familiar something is to us to gauge the risk, which obviously can lead us astray. Pete, when we talk about absolute risk, is that likely to have an impact on the vaccination uptake, people making comparisons? Uh, yes, it does. And we can see that it does. So when I talk about people finding absolute risk really difficult, I mean, one of the reasons is because we're really not very good in our brains at representing very low probabilities. So to put that in really concrete terms, if I get you to try to distinguish between a one in a thousand shot and a one in a million shot, actually, people are not very good at doing it. As far as we're concerned, one in a thousand and one in a million gets kind of coded as just really unlikely to happen. But of course, one in a thousand and one in a million are massively different, right? They're a thousand times different, but your brain doesn't encode them that way. They're just in the bucket of it's highly unlikely, but it could happen. And that's one of the things that's really difficult here because the risks of side effects that we know about that are associated with the vaccines are incredibly small in absolute risk terms, but the fact that they can happen at all can have a disproportionate influence on people's decision-making and behavior. And it's one of the reasons why framing the decision as one of relative risk actually probably is more important. So getting across to people how much greater the risk that they face. Now, this is a decision for individuals, but as far as I'm concerned, it's pretty clear that you face a much greater risk from the consequences of COVID itself than you do from anything that we've seen based on the vaccine. And consequently, I think framing it in that way is, is a way that people can make the decision in a in many ways, a way that's kind of more attuned to the way human beings do make decisions than trying to process very, very low probabilities, which, which people are really poor at. 
The other thing I'd say in this space is, I mean, we ran a study on vaccine hesitancy, and there really is a job to be done here because what we discovered was two things, really. One is the people who are most hesitant are the people who are least likely to see the vaccine as having benefits. So while all the focus has been on you know, social media and anti-vaxxers and scare stories, actually the thing that's really interesting is the people who are most hesitant are the people who are least likely to understand the benefits of the vaccine, how effective they are. Uh, that they just haven't absorbed that message, if you like, or or become persuaded that these vaccines actually work. So that's the first thing. And the second thing that's really interesting is we gave that sample as a large representative sample, 1,600 people. We gave them a knowledge test. And what we found was a really strong relationship that the people who were hesitant or resistant to taking the vaccine were the people who had the lowest levels of knowledge about it. So actually, there's still a really large job mm. to be done to communicate the science and the knowledge and get people to think about the relative risks that are involved. That sounds like a difficult project. How would you even begin to tackle it? Well, I think our study helps from that point of view. It's about trying to get the benefits across to people. So I think it makes a difference there to, to think in that way and to talk less about the risk and more actually about what the vaccines do and how they protect you and how they help you and what they're doing to transmission and showing how effective they are. I think the other thing that's interesting is that one of the reasons that the hesitant people are less knowledgeable is because they're the people who've zoned out. And we found that in the study too. They're the people who've stopped following the news. They certainly won't be listening to this podcast. You know, they, they try not to listen to, zone, to information about COVID. And that means that you've got to try and reach them in different ways. You've got to try and reach them through on-the-ground communication. You've got to try and reach them through friends and relatives. You've got to try and reach them through local health services and so on, not just through kind of national media campaigns because they're zoned out from them. So hopefully that evidence has, has contributed. Well, in fact, I know that evidence has mm. contributed to, to the vaccine effort in Ireland. But it's kind of interesting because, again, without running the experiments, you wouldn't know what's really driving vaccine hesitancy. You might think it's a lot of stuff about conspiracies and anti-vaxxers and scare stories. And actually, it's a much more straightforward perceptual problem. A lot of the studies you do seem to touch on decision making. It seems to be somewhere either to the fore or to the background, but it's there. The whole notion of we're being asked to make decisions and quite important decisions every day, not related to ordinary living, which is in cars and doing something stupid, as opposed to exposure to this disease. You know, it could be vaccine hesitancy or measuring expectations and things like that and how you're going to respond to it. Um, but I think you're also involved in international studies attempting to improve decision-making. So is this being done as a way to, are we have to get past the, the pandemic, but is this something that can be shared with people to make them just better at, at making decisions? Or does it have another purpose? That's a really good question. So understanding how people make decisions, like any science, can be used for good or ill. And that's something that my lab is really conscious of all of the time. So yes, I mean, our purpose is to try to understand how people make decisions so that we can help them make better decisions and then we can inform policymakers to help them make better decisions. But it's perfectly possible as well to take our research and use it to sell more pieces of plastic from China that we'd all be better off if they weren't being bought, you know, or to buy things that are bad for you but attempting. I mean, people can take that decision-making research and they can use it for good or ill, just as you can with many other scientific findings. Now, most of the work we do and most of the work we're doing internationally is for policymakers directly. 
Um, and my experience working with policymakers, despite the fact we're often scared that governments will try to control our decisions, and you read a lot of literature about this, and there's been a lot of commentary on behavioral scientists trying to nudge us and mm-hmm. you know, governments using these techniques to sort of try, try and push people to do things they don't want to do, this kind of thing. My experience actually is it isn't really like that at all. Most of the government departments and organizations that we would work with are trying to help people you know they're trying to protect them from being scammed or paying too much they're trying to help them to reduce their impact on the environment they're trying to get them to look after their health and so on most of what we do feeds into those kind of organizations Mm -hmm. where you know what we're really showing them is look if you change the context in which people make this decision you can make it easier for them to make a good decision and occasionally also are there things we can tell people or decision aids, if you like, so kind of online systems or apps or quizzes or things that they, they can do that will actually improve their own decision-making if they mm-hmm. undertake to do that. So instead of a nudge, you more commonly hear that referred to as a boost. So instead of kind of nudging people's behavior by laying the information out differently, you're actually trying to give them a capability or a skill to help them make better decisions, and that would, that would we would call a boost. So we do a bit of both. Mm-hmm. We touched on this earlier, but it relates to decision-making in, in terms of making choices between one option and another option. How can that be predicted? Is that a very predictable thing? Uh, it's a surprisingly predictable thing in the sense that, I mean, we would run a lot of lab studies where we can influence it quite strongly. So we can change away a decision is put in front of you and make a real difference to the likelihood that you choose A or B. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of techniques we can do to use that. It's a little bit like a conjurer forcing a card. So this goes back to are we doing it to help you or are we doing it not yeah. to? We have to have a really good criterion for when is a decision a better decision and when do we think it's reasonable to do these things. So, of course, that, those are issues. But one of the things that's fascinating in this is that people actually have very, very little insight into their own decision-making. Now, I know this from going all the way back to my PhD in visual perception, actually, where I was studying people's ability to detect things that were almost undetectable. And one of the fascinating things is that you can put someone in a lab and you can watch them get it right 80% of the time and they think they're performing at chance. So they think they're performing randomly, but they're actually getting it right 80% of the time. In Mm -hmm. other words, introspection doesn't always tell you that much about how you're actually making a decision or whether you're doing it well or not. Now, that extends to all sorts of decisions, not just perceptual decisions about what you can detect and what you can't detect. I mean, even decisions about whether you're willing to take the vaccine, whether you're going to go to the shops before lunch. I mean, all these decisions, you've got neural processes going on that are quite noisy, quite complex, are taking a lot of factors into account that you're completely unaware of. And one of the fascinating things about the kind of science that we do is we can unpack some of that and we can find some of the influences on your decisions that you wouldn't be aware of, but are Mm. definitely influences on your decisions because experimentally we can prove it. So introspection is not great when it comes to decision making. We think we do things for particular reasons and we're not always right about it. I see. Can you give some examples? Sure. So, I mean, going back to the COVID issue, one of the things that's fascinating, I I told you about those emotional manipulations that we used on people with the identifiable victim effect Mm -hmm. and getting across to people how many people they could infect because of the way infection is exponential. So we tested some posters that contained messages along those lines and we compared them with an informational poster. But we also asked people which posters they thought would be more effective. So which would be most likely to affect people's decisions and behavior? And they thought the factual posters would be more effective and that our 
posters that were identifying this victim and had this kind of numeric explosion idea hidden in the messaging and so on. They thought those posters weren't going to be very effective, that that kind of marketing wouldn't work. So we found exactly the opposite of what people thought was going to be the case. And the reason is because when people make decisions, they think what they're doing is looking at the information, weighing it up, and then putting all that into the mix, as it were, and producing a decision. Whereas what we're really showing is that when it all goes into the mix, there's some stuff in there that you don't think is going to influence you. You maybe even think it shouldn't influence you, and you think it doesn't influence you, but actually it does. So again, you know, that that would be an example that's COVID-related where that has a clear kind of policy impact as well, because mm. it says, look, you know, we need to keep some of the emotion in these messages because it's more effective. Do you think then, I don't know, this this is kind of a tricky question. Do you think that we all respond in a kind of typical way, like I heard, copying nearby neighbors and making choices that match up with other people's choices? I mean, are we kind of, are we kind of there? We're kind of easily led around the place. So that's a really good question. Individual differences in decision making can be quite strong. Mostly what we study in our lab is the commonalities, the things that influence all of our decisions. But of course, some people are more susceptible to things than others, and people are different. One of the things that's fascinating, though, is typically, in my experience, people will expect there to be much bigger cultural differences than there are. So one of the conversations I will typically have with people is I'll explain some result to them where we say, well, look, we did it this way, and you know, this was the behavior that we saw, and it was a bit of a surprise, and you'll get back, ah, well, sure, yeah, you know, people in Ireland, that's what we do. We're, you know, we're different like that. We do, you know. And the funny thing is you can tell exactly the same story to a Canadian person, and the Canadian person will say, ah, well, what you see in Canada, that's the way it's done in Canada. You know. And what's fascinating is actually those cultural differences when you measure them scientifically are really small. They are there. I mean, there are some cultural differences, of course they are, but we go to them as explanations and that kind of individual difference when actually um, those influences are much smaller than the things that unite us about the way we make decisions. Now, I've just given you the example of culture there. Uh, exactly the same thing is true when you look at decision making by educational attainment or social class, by gender and so on. There are some differences they're really not very big. On the gender one, the largest one, which uh, usually entertains most people, is you may be unsurprised to learn that it really is true that men are systematically more optimistic than women, particularly when it comes to their own abilities and outcomes. Um, hmm. That turns out to be true. And the other thing is that men are also more likely to take on a risk than women on average. There's huge variation, obviously, between people of the same sex as well. But those gender differences are real. Most gender differences are, are tiny or non-existent. Those ones are real. They're not huge, but they are there. Mm -hmm. The uptake of COVID vaccines has been really strong in this country. Is a reason for pride, really, that people are actually doing what they can. Do you have any insights on why this is the case? How come the Irish are doing well? Or is this another case that you just mentioned, like the Canadians think they're doing great and we, we're only the same as them? Or uh, no, so the, the international data are very encouraging on our vaccine uptake. So I, I want to be absolutely clear what we mean by that. It's not the speed with which people are being vaccinated. It's not how many people are vaccinated. It's what proportion of the people who are offered it are taking it. Mm. And when you look at what proportion of the people who are offered the vaccine take it, we're very high by international standards. I mean, almost at the top of the list, there's Denmark is up there as well, and we're about level with them. So we're doing really, really well. There is a long way to go. I mean, things can change there. And that's important because I think I can't be sure about this, but one of the reasons that I think we do well, and one of the reasons I think Denmark does well too, is because we are small and we have a strong sense of cohesion. And that really matters because the decision that people are being asked to make is partly for everyone else. Mm. 
And that's been something that has actually worked well throughout the pandemic, not just with vaccination, but also with other behaviours. We also, and people here maybe struggle to believe this, but we've actually done pretty well in the pandemic compared to a lot of other countries in terms of keeping infections and hospitalizations and deaths down and in terms of adhering to social distancing regulations. We've been pretty good, actually. And I think, again, one of the reasons is because we're quite a small and coherent society. One thing I wish I had said so that I could prove I said it beforehand rather than with hindsight is that I thought smaller nations were going to do better when this all started. And I particularly thought smaller nations with larger, shall we say, somewhat competitive neighbours would do particularly well. And when you looked at the first wave of COVID, that turned out to be absolutely the case. So, you know, Canada did better than the USA, Portugal did better than Spain, Denmark did better than Sweden and better than Germany, and guess what, Ireland did better than England. And I think that kind of smaller cohesive nation makes a real difference in these kind of collective action problems where we have to find collective solutions. So it may not always feel that way when we have the political debates that we have here amongst ourselves, but actually by an international standard, we're doing quite well. And I think that cohesion is a strong part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, your your group studies a wide range of public actions, such as you know how likely people are to go out and socialize or spend money or you know travel or to meet other people. You then provide all of these to the Department of Taoiseach on a fortnightly basis. I believe this is, has helped to build a predictive model of, of public behavior. What is it telling you? Yeah, so we developed what we call the Social Activity Measure, or SAM for short. SAM is both our friend and a albatross around our necks within the behavioral research unit yeah. because we have to turn this data around every two weeks we've done it since january now so the data come in it takes seven or nine days to collect it we have two or three days to analyze it and the data write it up that's basically how it works and we're doing it every two weeks so there are times when we don't like sam and there are times when sam is our best friend mm. um, but sam has been a huge data source so we have a thousand people anonymously telling us what they're doing um online And yes, I mean, it really does ask exactly where they've been and what they've done and how long for and who with and so on and whether people are vaccinated or not vaccinated and it's tracking their intentions to get vaccinated and whether they've had one or two doses and we can see how behaviour changes as people become vaccinated as well, which is really interesting. So we we do have this, this kind of lovely study, if you like, that's sort of tracking the pandemic response through time. And within that... After we've asked people what they do in a very matter-of-fact way, at the end, we then ask them for a load of attitudinal responses um, and a load of perceptions. So, for example, we might get them to rate how coherent they think the government's restrictions are on a scale that runs from very coherent to very contradictory. Uh, We ask them how worried they are in general about the virus. We ask about their general confidence in the government. We have a question that we particularly like, which has them to trade off the burden to themselves of putting up with the restrictions against preventing the spread of infection of the of the virus in the community, which is a question we like because it really pits that kind of selfish incentive against the greater good incentive that mm-hmm. we all face and how we're behaving in all of this. So we ask all these different questions. And what that means is that we can relate the answers to people's behavior. So we can say, look, are the people who are behaving more riskily, are the things that mark them out, and are the people who are being more cautious and following the guidance, are the things that mark them out? And we build statistical models to try to show this. And that does give us some some answers. So essentially, we know that the three primary drivers of people's behavior in terms of how cautious they're being, um, and what I mean by that is whether they have a close contact with someone else, whether they're undertaking a social visit to someone else's house, whether they're cautious in their day-to-day behavior, washing their hands and wearing masks and so on, 
and just how many people are they meeting from other households. So we, we take these measures and we model them. What we find, some things are unsurprising. So the more worried you are about the virus in general, the less risky your behaviour. But that perception of how coherent the response is, that turns out to really matter. So people who think that the societal response, the government response is coherent are much more likely to be more cautious and to stick with it. We also find that that variable about whether you prioritise yourself or preventing the spread, so you're your own putting up with the restrictions versus the spread, that turns out to be a powerful driver of behaviour too. So we can show these things. But really interestingly, we also discover some things that don't seem to matter. So we thought that how well you understood the transmission of the disease would make a difference, that people who understood transmission well would behave differently from people who don't. That turns out not to be the case. We test it mm -hmm. with a multiple choice set of questions uh, to see how good people's knowledge is. How knowledgeable you are about how the disease transmits doesn't alter your behavior. We also ask people to estimate the chance if they break the government restrictions that they'll be caught and fined. So we try to test a deterrence effect and we can find a tiny one, but it's hardly anything. The voluntary action, I mean, it is statistically significant, but it's really, really small. So if you think you're likely to be caught and fine breaking the restrictions, you are slightly less likely to engage in risky behaviours. So the voluntary actions to do with your, your level of worry, the coherence of the response, and essentially how public-spirited you are are the things that are really driving people's behaviour. Pete, this work is extremely interesting. I must say it's, it's, it's fun to listen to you talking about it. And uh, I'm really curious about the, you know, the SAM. SAM might be a pain, but it seems like an absolute avalanche of, of useful data. And your research, which is good too, is making an important contribution in the state's battle against COVID-19. Just thank you very much for taking part in our podcast. It's much appreciated and wonderful, wonderful stuff. Thanks very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll find previous episodes at ria.ie slash vaccine questions. And if you have a question you'd like me to ask the experts next time, please send it to vaccinequestions at ria.ie along with your name and location. Take care and talk to you next time.